It was about um, 20 years ago when these shirts started coming out that said life is good. And um, kind of encouraging shirts. They're kind of cool looking, actually. And uh, but I was thinking, what makes life good? I, I, mean, I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, I don't know that everybody could actually wear that shirt, but depending upon where you live, but um, what is a good life? I mean, what, what, what makes it good? Is it, is it a lot of years? Is it great health? You know, we hear repeatedly that if you have your health, you have everything. So is that it? Or, or is it uh, having a, a strong family or wonderful children? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it is a fundamental question to your joy. I mean, what is a good life? What makes it good? Is it completing a bucket list? You got these 10 things that you want to do before you die? That, if you complete the list, can you say, I've had a good life? It's a question you've got to ask yourself. The older you get, the more pressing and weighty the question becomes. You know, we've been looking through this Advent season at why Jesus, I mean, it's question why Jesus would leave the glory of heaven to come to the flesh of earth. And we found that, you know, first, the first week we looked at, he came as the light to reveal God to us. And then we saw that he came as a man in the flesh to display the glory of God to us. And then last week he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world for us. And, and then today, he's come as the shepherd of God to lead us to this thing called life, abundant life, whatever that means. That's what we want to find out. What is it? How do we get it? So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 10, and we'll read the first 10 verses. And, and just be aware that when John writes, there's some mixed metaphors. So he, he uses a lot of metaphors. And, uh, but, but it will make sense as we read it. In John chapter 10, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Oh, who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we're going to see a number of things here. Just first, just wrap your mind around this idea that Jesus has come as a shepherd uh, so that we would follow him. He has come as the true shepherd that we would follow him. I think you see this right in the first verse, first uh, two verses. He who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in another way, that means a thief and a robber. So you have a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is referencing himself as the shepherd of the sheep. But look with me at 7. You saw in, chap- you saw in verse 6 how they didn't really understand this parable. 
And so Jesus repeats it, and he changes the metaphor here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So is he the shepherd of the sheep, or is he the door of the sheep? Well, yeah, he's both. I mean, he's a door-keeping shepherd. You know, if you lived in that time, you would see the sheep often gathered in a pen. The pen wasn't like a cattle ranch in Texas where it's all fenced in with gates that swing open. Oftentimes it was a, it was a quickly made enclosure or it was a natural enclosure. And it didn't have a gate with a, with a hinge per se, but the shepherd would lay down in the doorway of the pen. So he was, in fact, the door, but he was also the shepherd of the sheep. And Jesus is saying that he's come to reveal himself as the true shepherd, in contrast to these thieves and robbers that we just read about. Now, who are the thieves and robbers? Well, of course, you'd have to read chapter 9. Remember now, we have chapter divisions to help us memorize and, and be able to find various truths of Scripture. There were no chapter divisions when the scriptures were written. So 9 bleeds right into 10. There is no distinction between the two. And in chapter 9, there's a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, or these religious leaders. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man, a blind man from birth. He healed him. He spit into some dirt. He made some mud, put it on his eyes. And the man who had never seen could now see. Well, the Pharisees took real issue with this. You know, the question is, why would they take issue with such a great healing. Well, he committed this act on a Sabbath day. Jesus violated their understanding of the Sabbath. They took issue with him. Now, remember, this was not a miracle simply of healing. It was a tremendous thing. Can you imagine never seeing anything and now you see? But the miracle is more than that. The miracle is really a testimony that God's kingdom was breaking into our world. Our world is marked by abuse, by destruction, by just brokenness. And here you see this reversal of brokenness. You know, it's like blindness turning into light, sickness turning into health. So it's the in-breaking nature of God's kingdom. Not only that, but it was also a miracle that was specifically to identify this king of the coming kingdom. So in Isaiah 41, this Messiah would what? Give sight to the blind. So when he gave sight to the blind, it was not just the inbreaking kingdom. Here's the king. And these Jewish leaders, these shepherds of Israel, to guide and lead and, and prepare the flock for the coming of the Messiah, they didn't hear his voice. They didn't see his works. And so Jesus says that they're thieves and robbers. Now listen, Jesus isn't just speaking about his immediate context. He is. But really, when you look at the history of Israel... There was a constant problem with shepherds failing. You see this kind of crystallized in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 is a really an important chapter in the Old Testament because it really it brings God to the table and he brings condemnation to the leadership of his own people. And he criticizes the leadership because they were selfish. He says, you slaughter animals for your own pleasure. You take the best of wool for your own clothes. You do not pursue the wandering sheep. You don't serve them. You are interested in yourself. And so he condemns them. But here's what he does at the end of this condemnation. God makes a promise to Israel. And here's what he says in Ezekiel 34, 22. He says, I, God speaking now, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, 
and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. You know, David had been long dead when Ezekiel said that. They weren't looking for David. They were looking for the son of David to come, a shepherd, a true shepherd to come and shepherd the people of God. And this is what Jesus is revealing. I'm that true shepherd that was promised by God. And he shows it in the healing of the blind man. Interestingly, in chapter 9, these religious leaders not only rejected Jesus, they didn't hear his voice, they even threw this man out of the synagogue. The shepherds trying to protect the sheep are sending the sheep out. And so here's what Jesus says. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So here you have this picture of a blind man seeing Christ hearing Christ, believing in Christ. You have the shepherds of Israel blind, not believing in Christ, not seeing Christ. I mean, the irony of ironies. Jesus has come in the flesh to be a shepherd to lead us, that we might follow him. He's a good shepherd. I mean, you notice in verse 3, he knows his sheep. You are known by him. Look, it says in 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. I, I was taught in seminary, or somebody told me this, and I try to practice it, and if you're new here, you've probably already seen me do it, but whenever I meet somebody, I try to say their name four or five times within the same meeting so I get it stuck in my, the steel trap I have on my shoulders. I, I want to keep saying their name. Why? Because we like to be called by our name. We do. We don't want to be referred to as a pronoun. We've been given a name. It's what we hear all of our lives. We want to be called by our name. Jesus knows his sheep by name. He knows us. Have you considered the intimate knowledge that he has of you? Sometimes I think in our sin, we just feel like he's so far away and doesn't know us. But he knows us by name. Not only does he know us by name, he cares for us as his own. It says that. He says that he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. I mean, it's a wonderful time to consider his care and compassion for the sheep. You know, in this day, uh, towns would actually gather all their sheep together in one large pen, and they would have a, a sheep keeper or a shepherd or a gatekeeper for the night. But then in the morning, the owners would come to the pen and would call out, call out their sheep. And the sheep would know their voice, and the sheep would come, just their sheep. There's this, there's this intimate knowledge and care that, that Jesus is declaring that he is the true shepherd house for us. But not just does he know us, not just does he care for us, we see in the same chapter that he has sacrificed himself for us. If you just go one verse beyond the section we read in John ten eleven, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is speaking about this work that he's going to do forward in John where he becomes a lamb. He becomes a lamb. He lays down his life. He says, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. No one forced him to do it. He chose to lay down his life for us, to take upon himself our sins and our shame and our guilt and die for us. That's the point of last week with the Lamb of God. 
You know, when the, when the priest would lay his hand on the, neck of the, on the neck of the animal and then slay the animal, all our sins being transferred to the sheep, sheep dying for us. It was a picture of what he would do. So when you look at this, you consider the season that we're in. I mean, the clear teaching of Christ is I've come as the true shepherd. Have you seen him as the true shepherd? Have you given this thought that he's come to reveal himself that we might follow him? Now, when you look at a passage like this, especially in these narratives, sometimes it's hard to see yourself in them, but the principles, I think, are clear. I think there's a clear word to the church here regarding the leadership of the church, both for us as leaders, but for would-be leaders, but also for sheep to understand how their leaders operate. And you see some real marks of false leadership as Jesus calls them thieves and robbers. You see a selfishness as a mark of, of false leadership. You see this idea of selfish gain, selfish promotion, that, we, that, that there are some shepherds that use the flock for their own ends. But it's not just selfishness. It's also this false teaching, this fumbling of the gospel. See, the Pharisees in this day were very much on the rules and the regulations. Structures are important to the Pharisee to do these things. Now, Christianity does speak about obedience. There's a clear call to obey. The problem here is their call to obey was more out of duty. These Pharisees were not promoting a love for God, a zeal for God. In other words, I want to call you to, the good shepherd wants to call you to obedience as well. But in obedience born out of affection, in obedience born out of love, in obedience born out of, this is what Jesus Christ has done for me. If I really understand my plight, and I really understand his saving work in my life, there has to be a natural sense of affection for the one who has died for me. And then out of the overflow of the affection, there is an obedience that ought to follow. It shouldn't surprise us that when the Pharisees asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? He said to love the Lord your God, your to love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So he says the whole law is summed up in that. And, and what these Pharisees have done is they were calling for strict obedience to regulations and procedures, but there was no clear declaration of the greatness of God that would cultivate affections within people so that that love would flow, and obedience would flow out of that love. Or is it any wonder that Jesus... When he reinstates Peter into ministry, remember after Peter denied him three times, what did he ask Peter? First question, this is the call to ministry. Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? I mean, the shepherd has to have a love for the Savior. And the shepherd has to cultivate and encourage a love among the sheep for the Savior. And it's then out of that that we follow him. First Peter makes very clear, he says, Peter's writing to the elders of the church scattered across the Mediterranean basin. He says, I exalt the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The longer I'm in ministry, the heavier this is. Why? Because I have more history. I have more, we as elders have more, have more things that we know we should have done better or we shouldn't have done or we shouldn't have said. And so you, you develop this. I'd ask you to pray for us. This is a weighty responsibility to be a good under-shepherd of the shepherd. We need your prayers for that. You need to be praying for your leaders toward that end. We need it. But, but there's also a word for the sheep in this passage. It was kind of an internal test in the scripture that we just read to discern whether we're really of the true shepherd or not. And that is, do you know his voice? Do you love his voice? Do you listen and then follow his voice? It's one thing to know the scriptures, but do you know it is the voice of the one who has died for you? When you, when you hear a teaching, are you inclined to follow? I mean, do you come listening to follow, or do you come listening simply to learn? There's a difference there. Once you're learning, but there's a learning to follow. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, in one in the 19th century, he wrote these words. He says, what provides infallible evidence that you are a child of God? Well, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. His sheep perceive him. They trust him, and they're prepared to follow him. Or Jonathan Edwards, another theologian of the 18th century in New England, I love the way he just succinctly puts it. He says, There may be several good evidences that a tree is a fig tree, but the highest and most proper evidence of it is that it actually bears figs. That's how you know if it's a fig tree. You know the sheep if they follow his voice. Do you follow his voice? And this might be a time right now we just stop and say, maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to repent that we have been hearing his voice and we haven't followed. We don't come to hear teachings to say, yes, I want to follow what has just been told to me. Or I want to I repent of what I have failed to do. It's a good time to just stop and say, have, do I have an ear that is tuned to the voice of the one who has died for me? Do you love his voice? When you read the scriptures, are you thankful for them? When you read the word of God, the, the voice of God, as it were, speaking to you, do you come to it with drudgery and, ah, oh, i got to read? If so, repent. God, give me a heart for your word. Let me hear your voice through your word, through your servants, whomever they may be. So, so there might be a point of repentance. I also think when we read this, there's a point of rejoicing here in the sense of he says clearly that my sheep will not heed the voice of a stranger. I'm thankful for that. I, I know that most of you have had that experience where you hear something and you're like, eh, I don't know if that's right. Or, or you hear something and you're like, you know, that doesn't square with what I remember. And, and you're kind of, your spirit is kind of on notice that I don't think I know that voice. That's the grace of God. We can thank him for that. We can thank him for those little promptings of God's spirit. I don't think that's true. And I'm going to go back and check that out before I commit or before I move with faith. Let's thank him for that. He has guaranteed that his sheep will hear him and will know it's his voice. I'm thankful for that. There's a lot of voices out there. A lot of words are spoken to us. A lot of people are saying a lot of things. There's a lot of persuasive people that can really kind of steer us in really varied directions. 
But his sheep know his voice. I'd also speak to you, if you're here, and you're not a Christian, you're here with your family, I'm glad you're here, thank you for coming. Um, what voices are, do you listen to? I mean, we're all influenced by things. I mean, we're all following something, a philosophy or a person or some ideology. What are you listening to? I mean, what are you hearing? What gets the most of your mental time as it processes through your ear? I, I would just ask you to consider this great shepherd. I think a lot of people have been stung by the church, frankly, by either the sheep of the church or the shepherds of the church. And we look at the past experiences that we had, or maybe we look at the general struggle with the church. You know, we have the Roman Catholic scandals that have been going on. And for you, that might be an excuse. I don't want to follow any shepherd. I'm going to be my own shepherd. Well, you've changed 15 times in 15 years on different things that you viewed. I mean, are you really a good shepherd for yourself? I'd ask you to consider this Jesus who has come to reveal himself as the true shepherd. And I'd ask you to consider him because of what he says in verse 9. Not only has he come to reveal himself as a true shepherd, but he's also come to bring a true salvation to a people who believe. A true salvation. Look what he says in 9. He says, I am the door. You see the switching of metaphors here again? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here he says, I'm the door. Again, you know, drawing your mind back to the shepherding imagery, with a sheep pen, they don't have, like ADA requirements now, multiple exits through a building. You had one door. That's all you had. You had one door that you entered. Just one. There was no other door. Jesus, in saying, I am the door, all who, anyone, if anyone enters by me, they will be saved. Jesus is very clearly saying that he is the only way by which we can be reconciled to God. Now, this isn't a term or a name that his disciples gave him after he died. This is his own self-designation. Think about the boldness, the audacity. If I stood up here and if I said, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I mean, you would think me minimally arrogant, most likely delusional. He has lost it. He's fought, Get him off the platform. He has lost it. You would think that of me. Why can Jesus say it? Well, because he's the son of God. And I think you see this implied. He says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. This I am is an expression from Ezekiel or um, Exodus 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees this burning bush. Remember, Moses is out wandering, trying to figure out the new direction of his life. He's wandering in the desert. He sees a burning bush. He goes to it, and God commands him from this bush to say, go to Egypt and deliver my people, the people that I have made a covenant with their father Abraham. Deliver them. And of course, he says, well, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's the name of God. It is the intimate revelation of God. Jesus saying, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is declaring himself to be of God, to be divine, the Son of God. Only he can say such bold things about promising salvation to be through him. Who can promise you salvation? I can stand up here and make all kinds of promises to you. Can't keep them. I don't have control over life and death. Only he does. 
He, the author and the perfecter of all things, the creator through whom all things were made. From the beginning he existed. He has no end. He has no beginning. He's forever. He's the only one that can say, I can save you. Through me you can be saved. Now, when we read something like this, if your office did have an office party, you would not want to bring this up. Why? Because you're open to the charge of being arrogant or being intolerant. Why? Because you're claiming something exclusive in a very tolerant age. But let me remind you of a truth. Is it really better to be able to say, well, all religions are equal? They're all the same. Is that a better way? I don't think so. I think it's just as arrogant, actually. Let me explain what I mean. If I were to say all religions are equal, I'm making a truth claim just as you would make by saying that Jesus is the only way. You could say to me, how do you know all ways are equal? I mean, do you stand in some transcendent position that you can look down on your creation and say, yeah, I know all ways, I've been through all ways, and I know for sure, for sure that they're all equal. Can anybody say that? I mean, I would say that is arrogance speaking, as if you are above everyone and everything, and you can make such a bold claim. You don't know that they're all equal. You have no idea. You haven't even lived your life. So remember, that that's a truth claim, just as saying Jesus is the only way is a truth claim. They're both, we're both speaking out of truth. That is not more objectively substantiated. It is not at all. So when he says, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's the claim he's making. I will save you. Now, listen, if you come from a Christian family, you probably use that expression about being saved. I was raised Roman Catholic. We never used it. Didn't know what it meant. Someone said, are you saved? I'm thinking, I want to be saved from you right now. It was a, it was a, a, a full-throated evangelist. Let me just say that. But I didn't know what being saved means. But, but let me remind you, for those of you who have heard the term, and maybe it's become common language for you, it's a weighty term. It's a weighty term. To be saved, what's that imply? It implies you're in a situation that you don't need just sage wisdom and good advice and maybe some horse wisdom. It means you're helpless. It means you're incapacitated. It means you're unable it means your boat is sinking and you're, save me. You've got nothing else. I mean, when you say, save me, when you yell, save me, you're in dire straits. Now, of course, it begs the question, what is he saving us from? I mean, if Jesus is going to come to save us, it's probably important before you leave glory, what am I saving? What are you saving us from? Well, of course, we already know that. Remember Matthew back in chapter 1, when the angel spoke to Joseph and said, you will give him the name Jesus because you will, he will save his people from their sins. And that's the fundamental problem of life. He's come to save us from our sins. So when Jesus says, I'm the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. By faith in Christ alone is how we are saved from our sins and reconciled to God. It's by faith in Christ. When I say faith, I'm not talking about a feeling that you may have when there is an emotionally spiritual song played. Faith is this objective reliance on Christ. And that in Christ, when God looks at you, he will find you with favor. 
because of Christ. So the whole safety of your soul rests upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So faith is not really a feeling. It's a subjective reliance. I am believing that Jesus' life, his death, and confirmed by his resurrection, that now God finds me as a son or for you as a daughter. So it means to have, to have faith. And the evidence of that faith is, as I said at the beginning, a growing affections, a desire for Christ to be exalted, loving to worship the Savior, a desire to see him face to face, an increased love for the world. These are just evidences. This is the fruit sprouting out of the heart of faith. These things are, are part and parcel of faith. For the Christian, though, if you're a Christian, I think I don't need to convince you that the struggle that we have in this life is due to our sin, our brokenness, our alienation, our saying to the Creator, we're going to do it our own way for a while, and, and, and this is the result, the struggles and the hardships and the issues that we have in life have come about because we have broken rank with the one who has given us life. I think you know that. And I think you know that to become a Christian is to humble yourself under this truth. And that's what we do in, in Christmas. We really want to remind ourselves, we want to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That, that God has sent a deliverer for us because we see sin as the issue. We know we need to be saved from sin. But you know, as a Christian, you have to humble yourself first. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a sermon on Advent, Advent being the season of four weeks prior to Christmas, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a Lutheran theologian who was shot by the Nazis at the very end of the Second World War. He said this, he said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. For these, it's enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One Himself comes down to us. God in the child in the manger, God comes. The Lord Jesus comes. Christmas comes, and Christians rejoice. We rejoice over it because we see the nature of our sin, we're humbled by it, and we've realized, save us. I mean, it is like you're going down to death and a rescuer comes. You would not say, I need a little help. Save me. You'd be absolutely humbled, throwing yourself at him. That's what we are. God has come down to save us. We need to be saved. Even if you're not a Christian, though, I, I think you know intuitively that you need to be saved or helped in life. I mean, God's built that into the system, hasn't he? Who here could sustain themselves on their own day one of birth? God has built it in the system of creation that no one here could take care of themselves. Everyone needed help. If your mother gave birth to you and she walked down the road, you're gone. For years it was that way. You needed help. All of us do. I think it's self-evident we need help. That's why we turn to these functional saviors. We turn to the government. It's big. It's massive. It has a lot of money. It can be our help. It can be, that's the one I'll trust. Or we turn to the medical community. They're so smart. They're, they're figuring out cure after cure after cure. They're going to help us live forever. Or we turn to a relationship. If you're single, you think salvation's in getting married. If you're married and you're in trouble, you think salvation's getting out of marriage. 
You know, relationships are going to be where you're going to find help and salvation. Or we turn to ourselves. You know, that's the rhetoric of the last 30 or 40 years. Dig down deep within. You know, there's potential within. I often look at that and I think that's, I can't beat myself out of a paper bag sometimes. And I sit there and think, what kind of savior would I make? I, I, I would encourage you, particularly if you're here, even if you've been here for a while, the response to this message that he has come to be saved, the response is to believe, is to confess your sins, to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. It's by repentance and it's by faith. That's how we enter. Have you, have you entered by Christ? Have you found Christ to be your mediator? That he's the one that's going to reconcile you to the Father? That's why he came. That is the fundamental problem facing all of us. You can take all the issues in the world, you can put them all in one bucket, you can put it under one title. This is the result of breaking rank with a creator God when we aren't creators. Have you accepted? Have, have you moved towards him by faith? I would encourage you to consider that. Then the third thing I think we see here in this text, he's come to reveal himself as a shepherd that we might follow. He has come to bring about and provide a salvation to those who believe, to those who believe, not that we know it, but we trust it. And that he's also come to give life, life to the full. Now look with verse 10 with me. Look at verse 10 with me for just a minute. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So clearly you and I don't live on neutral ground. There is a clear and a present danger among us. We may live in, Raleigh is a lovely place to live, and we've all dressed up so nicely today. It's a, it's a very nice place to be, but this shows us that there is a clear and present danger. In fact, it's interesting. The thief comes, Jesus says, I come. Both are coming. The thief comes, though, to kill, destroy, and to steal. Now, who is the thief? Well, I don't know exactly. Uh, older theologians seem to think it was Satan. Newer theologians, and, and if you want to be consistent with the word thief in verse 1 and verse 7, it would be the false teachers. But either way, whether it's false teachers and false teaching, or the father of false teaching and, and false living, Satan, whatever it is, it lets us know that teaching is important. We don't want to fumble the gospel. We don't want to miss the gospel. We don't want to be caught up with false teaching. But Jesus, in contrast, says, I've come to bring life, life to the full. Now, I don't want you thinking, I think if you watch TV preachers, they're going to explain this differently than I will. Uh, they're going to explain it as an abundance of goods and material blessings to those of you who have faith. Or that if you truly believe that wrapped up in Jesus is healing and it's removal of trouble and trial and it's just a good, abundant life right now. And I think that has bled into the evangelical church where we kind of have this cause-effect dynamic in our minds with Jesus. You, don't you find kind of natural that if you think I'm doing these things and he has to start producing these things? It, it, you know, we move, even though we're a people of grace, we move into this dynamic of a quid pro quo relationship with God. Well, I'm doing this. I've prayed this. I, I want to encourage you to fight that. I don't think that's true. I, I think that's what Martin Luther called a theology of glory. We follow a theology of the cross, that there is a cross before there's a crown, 
We know that. We have to prepare ourselves for that. And the prosperity teachers will not help you live this life for his glory. Well, what does he mean then if he doesn't mean abundance now? Well, I think it means first, in a minimum, abundance then. I mean, I do want to cast your eye to that final day when you see him, you'll be like him. I, I do think he's calling us for that. He's calling us to think about that, that passage in Revelation where there'll be no more mourning, crying, or pain. The old order of things has been wiped away. God will dwell with man forever. I think that's the abundant life, no doubt. But I think, I think that bleeds into today. But how? How does it bleed into today? Well, this is what I, what I want to submit to you. And just thinking about this, and the abundant life now, I think, is Jesus restoring to us what God originally intended for us. In other words, what is this abundant life? What's this blessed life? I think you find it in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, in Genesis chapter 2, God gave life to us. And it was abundant life. Sin brought us out of the garden and brought us away from God and took away the abundance and made life difficult and challenging. That's our present existence. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, he is reestablishing He is restoring God's order. Jesus is rolling back sin and brokenness and shame. And he's moving us from glory to glory to be like him. And that's why for the Christian, the abundant life is first a harmony. Throughout the theme of Scripture, there's a shalom, a peace, a wholeness. In other words, Jesus Christ has come to bring about a relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. That by his sin, by our sin, put on him and his death and his resurrection, we have now been forgiven. So in other words, you never need from day on, from day one on, to despair over finding God unfavorable to you. You don't need to worry, is he going to accept me or not? If you have been found in Christ and you have placed your faith in him. Think about that for a minute. To never move away from a position of a favored son or a favored daughter. I mean, the way you understand your relationship with God is very telling to your understanding of his covenantal commitment to save you. That Jesus has not just saved you, but he's going to keep you saved. That's his commitment. Not one of those given to me will I lose. So when we talk about abundant life, it means that I have a perfectly reconciled relationship with a heavenly father who loves me. He is not a he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That's not the way God, we may play that way. He does not. He cannot. It's not even part of his character. So there's a reconciliation that takes place. That gives us joy in this life. I mean, if you know the pain of conflict, you know what joy that is to have God assuredly say, You are mine forever mine. People, we, we need to believe that. That's what I'm calling the believer to believe. You may believe he died on the cross. Well, if you believe that, And you must believe the result of that being, I will love you forever. But not just reconciled with God. Part of this abundant life is being reconciled to one another. This is the fruit of his labor. That that in the garden, in Genesis 2, there was a peace. They were naked and unashamed. And yet now, shame dominates many of our relationships. Conflict, I hate conflict. I hate being at odds with people. That's why I love repentance. I love to repent. That's what he's given to us. You know, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. He's reconciled the two, that is Jew and Gentile. He's destroyed the dividing wall. 
So in other words, the church is marked by a willingness to reconcile, to restore relationships, to move in trust again with one another. This is the abundant life. You know how life is not abundant? You know, with Christmas, what do we have? Usually a lot of family drama. And a lot of family drama is not pleasurable. It doesn't bring forth a joy and an abundant life. We know it. Everybody has an Uncle Fester. They do. That was, you got a YouTube, couple Adams families, and you'll find he lived in the basement or the Munsters. I forget which one it was. But the reality of it is that that's part of the abundant life, a reconciled relationship with one another. But not just that. It's even more. The abundant life is not just being shalom or at peace, but it's also fruitfulness, fruitfulness in this life. I mean, he, God said, he blessed them and said, multiply, be fruitful. When I mean be fruitful, it's not simply childbearing. I mean taking the gifts that God has given to some, each of you have these gifts, and to use them in the kingdom, to use them in your marketplace, in the workplace, to use them in your family that you would be bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your relationships, that, that people would appreciate working with you. And you know how that feels. You know when a job is done well, you know how good that feels. That's the blessing of God. That's the abundant life, to do something and to do it well. God's given you the ability to do that and thrive in that, enjoy that, you know, extend yourself in that. But not just, not just peacefulness and fruitfulness, but also the abundant life is rooted in our God-centeredness. The communion that we have with God, what I mean by this is a contentment in God it has to be part of this, of this abundant life. You know, in, in um, Hebrews 13, 5, he says, be content in all things. And he says, uh, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the promise of God's presence that allows us to be contented with God in other words, one definition by Dallas Willard of the abundant life is having a life in the life of God. You know, it comes from Colossians chapter 3. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. Your life is in God now. You commune with God. You have an ongoing relationship with God. What could take abundance from you when your life is hid with Christ in God, what could you need? What would, an, what would this extra thing do for you? What would add? It, just take Jesus and what else do you need to be happy beside him? Now this takes thought because we're people in the flesh with eyes and we see new things. Everything's new. We love new things. We want new things. It, it, Everything in this life is trying to get us on this, this treadmill of discontent. Everything is. That you're not happy, you're not satisfied, this isn't serving me. And discontentment rips the heart out of abundant life because you're always hungry. You're never satisfied. And yet, having a life in the life of God by Christ is to, is to just... Create a contentment regardless of where you are, regardless of the relational struggles, of the work struggles, of the health struggles. I, I grieve for you with those. I know many of you are discontented right now. I, I know many of you, if you could have a wand to wave, to change it, you would. You would. And I would too, many times. 
But this is where we have to fight for faith, to say, God, in you, all I need, I now have. The great Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. He leads. What could we want? Just alone, you could stop the psalm right there. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then it just goes on a litany of what he does for us. So let's just take a minute now and, and think through these ideas that, that he's come to reveal himself as a true shepherd, that we might follow him by faith, that he's come to provide salvation for us, that we might believe, and that he's come to give us life and life to the full. Many of us don't feel that full life right now, so let's take just a minute and possibly confess our sins if you are convicted. Uh, perhaps if you've been encouraged, rejoice over God's grace. Um, if, if you're not a Christian, then consider this great shepherd. Who will lead you? Who are you following? And then an elder, an elder will close us in prayer in just a minute. Thank you.